Hey, good morning, Grace Presbyterian Church. It's really good to be with you all. Um, and as Mark said, it was a real privilege, I think. I think guest speakers come up here and kind of give you the spiel like it's a real privilege and honor. But I think spending time with uh, the Middle Call family yesterday, it was just very refreshing for me and Christina. So thank you. And I'm pretty sure you as a church experienced their hospitality. So it really is an honor and, and privilege to be with you all. Uh, we're looking at Revelation 22. It is the last chapter of the Bible, and um, beautiful words for us to hold on to. So we're looking at Revelation 22, and I'm going to read that for us and then pray. This is the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one of what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this prophecy, words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you with many burdens and baggages. We come with you with... Uh, tears and mourning. We also come, though, with hope and anticipation, as we just read. There is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This world offers us so many things. We've tried, we've tested them all, and in some, in some ways, they are temporary happiness. They are te- temporary joys. They give us temporary peace. And yet there is a hope of, of another world, a world that is to come, a new city, a new Jerusalem that you are talking about, that you promise. And so, Lord, this Advent season, this first Sunday of Advent, we ask that you would be with us to hope and to continue to anticipate the prophecy which you have spoken about. We thank you. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, and give us hearts to believe this word, this hope, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, today, Pastor Mark called a random guy from Brooklyn to come to preach to you, but don't be uh, scared. Don't. It's going to be all right. I actually spent a lot of time uh, growing up in Greenport, which is, I understand, it's the North Fork, and I found out yesterday that there's a little rivalry, South Fork and North Fork, and I thought it was just Nassau and Suffolk, but I guess there's deeper uh, pains than that. So I used to spend a lot of time in Greenport. Um, my dad would take my family and my friends fishing. We would go about three, four times a year, and it would be great. My parents would close up shop in Brooklyn. Uh, we'd drive for about three hours, go all the way to Greenport. We'd get there late at night. We'd set up the tent. We'd uh, get Korean food on the grill. We'd eat it up. We'd get stuffed. And then around midnight, we would actually head to the docks. And why midnight to fish? Well, actually, uh, squid come out at midnight. And if you're a fisher, then you know this. I see some heads bobbing up and down. Uh, squid, they, are, they come out at midnight, and they are attracted to light and to headlights and to headlamps. And so that's how you uh, catch squid. After a few hours of catching squid, we would come back to the, to the site, we'd sleep, and we would wake up whenever we felt like it because there was just no care in the world at that time. And uh, we'd wake up, we'd eat some more, we'd swim, and then we'd fish again. And we'd do this for days and days. We don't do this anymore because seven years ago, my pops passed away. Fishing and camping in Greenport actually has lost its kind of uh, joy and meaning. It's lost uh, the intimacy. Um, very often in the middle of the night when my wife is sleeping, I would catch myself on YouTube just watching fishing videos. I miss the intimacy of my father. This isn't just my reality. But actually, I think this is our reality, all of us. For many, it's during the holidays where it, where the pain and the despair and the darkness is actually most felt. It's more deeply felt during the holidays. It's probably around our family tables, the dining tables, where there's an empty chair or two. And we're very much reminded of that. There's a lot to mourn, even though we're in the midst of celebration and fun. And yet we're given a hope for another world. Today our passage shows us that Jesus is with us in our mourning and our celebrating. That Jesus is both the Lord over our tears and our hallelujahs. In our text today, we're shown the last image of John's vision of Jesus Christ. And it's a vision of intimacy and promise. We see this right away here in verses 1 and 2, if you would look with me. We're shown first the water, the river of the water of life, and second, the tree of life. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So I'm going to talk about both these things. First, the river of life, and both the river and the tree is for healing. So first, the river of life is, is central to this new city, this new Jerusalem, this new heavens and new earth. It's not tucked away in some alleyway or, you know, some um, destitute street. It's in the center of the city. And the centrality of this river shows its importance. The river, in many cultures, is actually where life is found. Rivers or water sources would be coveted. There would be wars over water sources like a river because it was so necessary for life. A river being central in this new city is to mean that life and nourishment is available. It's offered for those that are in need of it because every other river, every other water source doesn't fully satisfy. In John 4, there's a story about Jesus and a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well, which maybe some of you are familiar with it. This episode is so interesting and fascinating. A Samaritan woman is at the well at what they, uh, at the sixth hour, and that time is about noontime. It's the hottest time of the day. It's a time where no other women are there, no other people are there. And she's there trying to get herself a drink, some water. Jesus, come, Jesus comes along and asks her, or tells her, give me a drink. To which she responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a Samaritan for a drink? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And he goes on, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. What's the woman's response? Sir, give me this water so that I will not go thirsty or have to come here to draw this water. Why does she want this living water that Jesus is referring to? Why is she so desperate for this? I mean, for us, we would probably want this living water too. We, we don't want to, you know, fill up those hydro flasks if we don't have to or leave our office desks and chairs to go to the water cooler. But the Samaritan woman's a little different. Why does she ask so desperately for this water? And the rest of the interaction between this Samaritan woman and Jesus, we find out uh, that she is here at the sun-beating hour because she's an outcast. She is someone who has had five husbands in the past, and the woman, uh, the man that she is with now, is not her husband. She's an outcast of society. She has a scarlet letter on her. She's the whore of Samaria. She's hated by all the ladies that come here in the cool of the day together as friends. Why? Because they don't like her. They're scared of her. She's not just thirsty for water. She's thirsty for a man and possibly their man or their potential man that comes by. She's rejected by everyone. And that's why she doesn't want to thirst ever again. It's so that she doesn't have to ever go back to this hell of a well. And it's not just a well with water. It's a place of mixed emotions. Joy from refreshing water, but pain from her loneliness. This river of life in our passage is what Jesus is ultimately referring to. 
with this Samaritan woman. He himself is the living waters, and he provides that in eternity. Hear this. At Jacob's well, we are reminded of our brokenness. But at Jesus' river, we are reminded that we can have deep satisfaction when we drink from him. My friends, how are you broken? Take just a second to imagine and to think, how are you thirsty? How are you like the Samaritan woman at the well? You know, in some ways, we're all outcasts. Some, are, some of us are just better at hiding it. If we're not an outcast, I can say that we're all thirsty. We're all looking for something to satisfy. We all have wells that we frequent, and these wells bring up mixed emotions. Let me just give you a few of them. You know, some of us find our lives to be so full through our jobs, but then it's through our jobs that we find life to be so draining, is it not? Others of us, it's through our marriages and our families and our kids that life is so great and brings us deep joy. But it's also at the same time through our family and our marriages where when fights erupt or arguments go haywire, where we're not satisfied and we are in turmoil. Others of us, it's our reputation and our image where we find our identity and our joy. But it's also where we find that we're most fake and fragile at times. These things are not necessarily bad, but it's just like Jacob's well. It doesn't fully satisfy. This river of life that runs through the center of the New Jerusalem is one of healing, of brokenness and thirst. It is for you just as much as it is offered to, to the Samaritan woman at the well. Secondly, we're shown the tree of life. It's depicted in a lush way, 12 kinds of fruit, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. This tree of life actually brings us back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve once were. The tree of life was at the center of the garden, and it was for them to eat of and for them to enjoy the presence of God continually and eternally. Adam and Eve, they did enjoy the presence of God for, for some time until they decided to rebel against God and his good command to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But you could eat from any other tree. And when they ate from the forbidden tree, uh, as many of us know, uh, they experienced guilt, they experienced shame before God and before one another. Death entered into the world. They were ashamed. They hid. They tried to find cover. They sowed themselves fig leaves. And when God had asked what had happened, they blamed one another and they hid from God. What does God do? God graciously sacrifices an animal to cover their nakedness. And then God also banned them from the garden and kicked them out east and put cherubim to guard the garden for them to not return until the curse is reversed. Since then, all mankind have been trying to make their way back to the garden. We're all groping around to see and to grab what might be the tree of life. We're all blindly walking in hope that we might run into the tree of life in our lives. But we all know our lives are filled with thorns and thistles. Life is full of sin and brokenness, and we add a tremendous amount of that as well into this world. As put together as we might seem, in reality, we're Adam and Eve. We're broken, we're sinful, we're lost without God. We're under a curse 
the curse of death. And yet here we see a picture of the tree of life that isn't barred, but available. How is it available to us in John's vision? Right? We got kicked out of the garden with Adam and Eve, but it's actually through Jesus that we can enter back into the garden. Disobedience and rebellion took Adam and Eve out of the garden, but it's Jesus' perfect obedience that brings us back into the garden. This we know because the whole Old Testament actually points forward to someone who is going to be greater and better than Adam and not turn his face and his gaze away from God. And the whole New Testament speaks of the one who even to the point of death, that is death on a cross, does not turn his face or his gaze away from God. The animal was sacrificed to cover Adam and Eve before they left the garden. And here we have Jesus Christ who is sacrificed so that he could cover us so that we could go back into the garden. Jesus is nailed to a tree so that we could have life from the tree. Let me repeat that one more time. Jesus is nailed to a tree so that we could find life in that tree. This is what's offered through Jesus. This is the hope. We get to walk with him past the cherubim guards into the garden and to have this tree of life that we've never eaten from before. Throughout all cultures, and especially very pertinent to ours, is this idea or this want, this desire of more and better. I drive a well-running, no-problem 2018 Honda Civic hatchback. It's great. It runs perfectly fine. But I wouldn't mind an Audi A4. We live in a two-bedroom, me and my wife. We have no kids. What are we doing in a two-bedroom? It's spacious. It's nice. But it would be really nice to have a two-bedroom with the in-unit in washer and dryer. I wouldn't complain with that. I'm not sure if the more and better is actually a bad thing. Because to be honest, I believe that our hearts are always yearning for more and for better because we know deep down in our hearts that there is more and better. Our hearts calibrate back west to Eden all the time where it was better. We not only quantitatively want more, but we want qualitatively better. Both the river and the tree of the, and tree of life, they are par excellence. They are at the top of its class. They're both pictures and realities for our deepest desires being met that we're being fully healed, that we'll be fully satisfied. This is what our hearts long for. Not just quantitatively another river or another tree, but qualitatively the tree, the river of another world. Now, it's not just the river of life or the tree of life that our hearts want. It's actually face-to-face -face communion with God. This is the gravest issue that we lost intimacy with our God, our maker, our lover. Look at verses 3 to 5 with me. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The vision of intimacy is seeing Jesus face to face. This is amazing. 
You know why this is amazing? Because this uh, levels out the playing field. Whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian here today, none of us have seen Jesus' face in all of its glory. That's amazing that this is a promise for all people, for all of us to see and that we could have. How is it that we can have this kind of intimacy and communion with God? Well, I've been getting at it. It's because Jesus on the cross lost all the intimacy between him and God the Father so that we could have this kind of intimacy between us and God the Father. He lost it so that we could gain it. It's so that our thirst and our brokenness will be healed one day. He has reversed the curse in the garden. We will one day experience an even greater joy and presence and intimacy with God than Adam and Eve ever experienced. This is the vision of intimacy that our hearts must see and hold on to by faith. This is what our, this is what truly heals our souls. Intimacy with God as it was always meant to be. C.S. Lewis says this, and it's in the front of your bulletin. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. There's no such thing. It's not there. Friends, have this vision of intimacy. Let your imaginations run wild and forward, especially in times of darkness and despair this Advent season. Because it is hard. It's not all just bright and merry. All you who thirst, one day you're going to be face to face with Jesus. All you who are being tempted and tried, you are one day going to be face to face with Jesus. Our hearts long for true intimacy and it will come. We have this in part and we're going to have it fully very soon. This is his promise. How do we know this is going to happen? He says it here three times in our passage. Three times. In verses 7, 12, and 20. You could see there that he says, I am coming soon. 7, 12, and 20. The Advent season is a time of hope and anticipation, prophecy. It's a wonderful and joyful time as we roll into the brisk Christmas day. And we, many of us are probably going to uh, be here or Christmas Eve service. And you're going to be together. We're going to sing songs together. We're going to be listening and hearing the nativity story. Then we're going to sip on some coffee and hot chocolate. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be wonderful. And then we'll have an extravagant dinner. And we'll be with our family and our friends, enjoying good food and chatting around the fire and exchange presents. Even as I'm talking about that, you're filled with the giddies. And I am. Whatever you're feeling, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a million times more than that. It's going to be amazing. This is the greatest joy and hope in this life after Jesus' death and resurrection. Soon and very soon, our Lord Jesus is coming for us. What's interesting about this time of year is that, um, in my experience, people get very lonely. It's probably the uh, time of most depression within uh, our society. Maybe it's because Thanksgiving and Christmas is so jovial that there has to be this hard crash after. I don't know. There's a poor family that can't afford gifts to exchange at the, you know, living room. It's very disheartening. Or there's a really rich family that have all the money to afford the gifts, 
but they don't really know one another. It's a time where people experience loneliness because they don't have a family or a place or a well-prepared meal for them to eat. Soon and very soon, Jesus is coming. Have this vision of intimacy. This leads us to a practice, and that's hopefully what you would take away. In verse 20, in the last mention of surely I'm coming soon, there's a response. Would you look there with me? This ought to be our response and our practice. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is a prayer. This is a prayer that the early Aramaic-speaking church would pray. Maranatha. It means, come, Lord Jesus. Come. The vision of intimacy and his coming soon ought to lead us to pray this prayer. Prayer is actually one of the most intimate things that we have on this earth with our Father in heaven. It's through prayer that our vision of eternity and intimacy grows and increases. This, in turn, draws us even closer to God when things go awry because we find that he's the only one that can make all things anew. When things are going wrong in your life and it's out of your control and it's going wacko, pray, come, Lord Jesus. When you see the brokenness and injustice of this world, pray, come, Lord Jesus. And even when things are going really well, we should still pray, come, Lord Jesus. Because when he comes, it's going to be unimaginably better than what things are right now in your life. And even when you're not praying, there is one who is praying on your behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of our Father, interceding on our behalf when we are not praying at all. The one who we are praying to come is praying for us as we are in waiting. That is amazing. My friends, our Lord and Savior has come once before. He's going to come again. He's currently with our Father preparing our place. We live by faith in this current age. When Jesus comes again, we're going to be face to face with him. Our faith will turn to sight and the new city will be teeming with intimacy. Until he comes again, you hold on to this promise. He is coming soon. Let me end with lyrics from this song from 20 years ago. It's called New Jerusalem. Lord, make ready your queen now. She waits in hope, watching the clouds. Clouds of rain, washing her clean now. Soon she'll be seen. Ready to have and to hold. Stand, New Jerusalem, dressed in white linen. Take his hand. Take his hand, you lovely bride of the land. The bride-to-be is waiting, clothed in purity, getting ready for the wedding to begin. And now she sings her love song, watching for the sun. And she knows, yes, she knows he'll come again. She hears of war and famine as her Lord foretold, sees the nations rushing blindly to their doom. But she lifts her head, rejoicing, watching for the sun, for she knows the world will bow before her groom. Soon and very soon. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, during these times, this Advent season, where it's very mixed with emotions. 
of joy and fun and celebrating, laced in with tears and mourning and grief and despair, we ask that you would be with us by your Spirit, that we would hold on to the promise that you are coming soon and very soon, that, God, one day we will be face to face with you and our faith will turn to sight and that intimacy what we are longing for, what our hearts are longing for, to be with you and to see you and to be in your presence will one day be. Until then, help us to pray. To pray, come, Lord Jesus, in all situations and in all circumstances, to pray, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, would you come? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.